Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is June 10th, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Tiffany, uh, Doug, uh, Elliot, and Gabby. Hi, guys. Sorry, I was having a hard time with names there. <laughs> Hi. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hello there. <laughs> And we are uh, we are missing Erica today, so we wish her well, and uh, we'll hopefully have her back next week. <clears throat> um, today's topic is uh, fasting, so fascinating information about fasting. <laughs> uh, we are going to be talking about whether it's uh, you know just a religious ritual or does it have actual beneficial effects on your body? Uh, can you gain longevity? Uh, improve your immune system? Can you even supercharge your brain? So there's some really interesting things that go along with fasting. And um, I guess to uh, to start off with, a couple of our hosts have been fasting uh, for <laughs> close to the last day. Um, <clears throat> what do you what, what have you guys found uh, in that time? I found that I want to eat dinner. <laughs> yeah, a little bit hungry, to be honest. For the most of the day, I was fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I was, uh, it wasn't until around noon that I actually started to feel hungry. And then it was just kind of like, it would come and go. Like, I'd forget about it for a long time. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of hungry. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. mostly good during the day until I started commiserating with you guys. <laughs> 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 Not eating. <laughs> But I haven't uh, noticed any boost in intelligence or um, any of the other benefits that we're going to get into over the course of the show yet. But hopefully. Sure. I yeah, think I'd... that would come over, over time. I've noticed that, um, that drinking water tends to um, soothe the hunger pangs mm. slightly. Um, so I've been trying to drink a lot, a lot of water today. Um, but yeah, in my previous experience of fasting, it's usually been the first 24 hours that are really the most difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, once you sort of pass that 24-hour mark, um, it kind of seems like you could go forever, you know. And then to start eating again, um, I found that you have to sort of force yourself to have that first meal to break the fast. And then from then on, then you start to feel hungry again. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, I also found that I'm kind of off cigarettes. Mm. I mean, I'm still smoking them, but they just don't <laughs> taste as good. <laughs> I see. Well, apparently, um, when you begin your fast in the first four hours, okay, you digest your last meal and uh, you use up the last resources of, of glycogen, of sugar stores in your body. And then the next eight hours, all your detox pathways in your liver um, get cleared up. And then after that, is it's like, yes, pure, pure burning mode, pure fat burning mode. Mm. Well, so technically, does that mean that, say, if you eat your last meal in the day at 7 p.m., and then mm. you go for 12 hours and have your breakfast at 7 a.m. the next morning, does that mean that you technically go into a semi-fasted state anyway? Apparently so, and actually that's what uh, they recommend, you know, when you start fasting, especially if you're not entirely on a keto diet, on a fat-burning mode, it is best to start with a a weekly, once-a-week, 12-hour fasting, intermittent Mm. fasting. Yeah. Yeah, apparently it depends on how how you eat regularly, too. Um, Mm -hmm. If you are a person who uh, eats a lot of carbohydrate and particularly like refined carbohydrate, your body has more difficulty getting into that fasting mode, Um, Mm -hmm. which um, if you wake up in the morning and you're starving, like absolutely famished, (laughs) chances are it's because your body is not properly able to switch over to that fat burning mode. And you might want to check your diet a little bit. Yeah, that reminds me on the emergency room, um, there are several people on the Ramada, which Mm. is this time of the of the year and they just they just come to the emergency room collapsed because of the fasting because they're so used to burning sugar Mm. it's just like a few hours without a candy or without any any carbs it's just too much on their bodies yeah 
Most sure. of the people doing Ramadan, you know, I don't want to generalize here or anything like that, but I feel like they don't strategize properly. Mm. Like if if they decided to be keto during Ramadan, they probably wouldn't really be affected by it too much. But the problem is that uh, from what I've heard, like, you know, I don't know a lot of people like Muslims who, who actually practice Ramadan. But uh, from what I have heard, a lot of them will kind of feast on, on you know, bread and pasta <laughs> and all this other kind of stuff. Like as soon as the sun goes down, they just start feasting and it's all this carbohydrate and stuff like that. And that's that's kind of like, you know, punishment for the body. <laughs> and I know in one of the articles it said that people don't tend to lose weight over the course of Ramadan. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised. Mm. You know, if, if, if they if they actually like kind of went with the fast and 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 used kind of keto techniques, they'd probably be a lot more successful and be a lot more comfortable. Well, maybe it is a form of penance because every major religion practices some form of fasting. Mm. They use it for purification or some kind of spiritual vis- vision, penance, mourning, or sacrifice, and they do it to prevent uh, gluttony or break the habits of gluttony. Mm. So they did, like, certain religions would do this fertility, like, do fasting before their fertility rites, and they would do it, like, on the vernal or the autumnal equinoxes, Mm -hmm. Um, and they would do it to kind of purify themselves, to get themselves ready for some kind of major religious holiday where they would receive the holy sacrament. So I'm thinking, like, is there something to this whole fasting thing or cleaning your machine that makes you more able to connect with the divine? Because it's pretty coincidental that so many religions advocate fasting of some type. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's interesting. Even on the fourth way practice, I remember Ospensky said that he would go into a fast to facilitate self-observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hippocrates, Plato, Socrates, or Socrates, <laughs> Aristotle, uh, they all promoted fasting. Gandhi was a big faster. But then there's the hunger strike, so yeah, where you draw that line between fasting and hunger striking. Yeah, that was my understanding of the religious aspect of fasting, that it was more geared towards uh, willpower and exercise of discipline than than health, necessarily. Mm. Well, um, we watched a good documentary. Well, it was was actually a TED Talk, um, TEDx Talk, by a professor of neuroscience. Mark Matson, I think his name was. Mark Matson, yeah. yeah. And he was talking about how um, historically, I'm not sure which culture this was part of, but they, um, uh, if if someone was, if someone exp- had had ep- epilepsy, then mm-hmm. um, they were seen to be possessed by demons, and so the treatment for epilepsy in those days was um, to lock the person in a room. Um, and that would supposedly treat their delusions or... With no food. Yeah, yeah, with, with no food. <laughs> well, it well, they... sounds like a drastic measure to do the keto diet. <laughs> exactly. I think they discovered that by accident. I yeah, think they probably. just locked them up just to get them away. <laughs> and then they yeah. noticed that when they finally opened the door again, the person was well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there are a lot of neurological benefits to uh, to fasting, for sure. <laughs> so, um, I mean, one of the things that it does is when your your body is deprived of um, carbohydrate um, and excess protein, it goes into ketosis, which we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, but fasting, I mean, it is it is known as like a fasted state uh, because you have kind of deprived yourself of this food. So your body starts burning its fat stores and starts creating ketone bodies. And <laughs> this this seems to have a very beneficial effect on the neurological system, uh, neurons in particular, they'll start uh, creating more um, uh, mitochondria so that they can pump out more energy. Uh, it has a protective effect on them as well. And in this Mark mm-hmm. uh, Matson talk we were watching, he actually uh, has been doing a lot of studies on rats and founding, finding that he's actually reversing um, Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's through and most- uh, fasting. There was also some good research about multiple sclerosis and how mm-hmm. it was very healing in autoimmune diseases. And some of the aspects, at least on the brain research, is that it increases BDNF, brain-derived mm-hmm. neurotropic factor, which is a super fertilizer for your brain. So 
that really motivates me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there was an article I read uh, about this new supposed cure for MS mm. where they blast the patients with chemotherapy oh. and totally Jeez. kill off their immune system and then they inject them with stem cells. Oh. And so their immune system totally rejuvenates and they get better from the MS. But you can skip the whole chemo thing <laughs> and just fast <laughs> yeah. because fasting uh, s- causes the production of stem cells. Mm. Yeah, That's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they've even I I, one of the one of the articles that that we were looking at um, actually even said that um, fasting can actually help with chemo the the side effects from chemotherapy. So yeah, I was very surprised to read that. Because yeah, even though when they received super toxic therapy, they were able to derive benefits if well, and provided they were fasting. Mm-hmm. And it's probably easier, too, because chemo can make you very nauseous. So yeah. naturally, you just don't want to eat. Yeah. 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 It's just like getting sick with a flu or any infectious disease makes you nauseous. So you will normally, you know, feel like fasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just like animals do. When they get sick, they don't eat or drink. They go and lay down in a corner somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a way for um, to kind of force you to not... Or force you to fast, basically, and uh, by going into that fasted state, you uh, the body kind of automatically turns on these repair um, systems mm-hmm. that kind of start. I think, I think that it's very important because often elderly people they don't want to eat, and uh, and people force them to. You know, yeah. you should eat, you should eat. Yeah. But maybe like it is it is an instinctive instinctive mechanism to repair the body, the muscles. Nowadays, it is very common to see mus- uh, atrophy of the muscles in the elderly, mm-hmm. to the point that you know uh, people say that oh, but I remember that my grand grandparent used to have strong muscles, but this was in the 1930s, you know, mm-hmm. when we used to eat differently, <laughs> more fats. When you consider the amount of energy um, that is actually needed to digest food, um, it would make sense that the body um, determines that food is not necessary because it needs to spend its energy otherwise repairing and um, replenishing damaged cells, etc. And and so it can be really quite stressful for the body to... um, to consume food when when it's not actually needed. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I've never noticed having eaten a large meal that I really feel like getting out and doing something right away. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark Sisson writes something about it in his research because he's like a primal guy, you know. Mm-hmm. He's quite old. Well, not that old, but he has very good, you know, muscle to- tone and <laughs> very athletic. And he says that, yes, uh, fasting, you know, doing a workout uh, with an empty stomach, it's actually better to trigger all the repair mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought the oxidative stress bit was, was interesting, that fasting causes small levels of oxidative stress, uh, which is the inability of cells to detoxify oxygen quickly enough. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it triggers protective pathways to form uh, in the cells. Uh, which is kind of like you know when you work out, um, you're you're actually damaging your your muscles on you know on on a small scale, um, which causes them to repair themselves and then makes you stronger. It builds up the muscle, mm-hmm. so it, it's kind of the same concept. Yeah, it's it's called a hormetic effect or hormesis, and yeah. the idea is that you you do something that's a little bit bad for the body, and it it will mobilize these. Um, ways to compensate for that and that that actually has an overall benefit so it, it also um in fasting um y- it mobilizes your body's um natural antioxidant um pathways so like glutathione all that sort of stuff and mm-hmm. um actually overall has an anti-inflammatory effect uh despite the fact mm-hmm. that you are actually creating more free radicals 
Oh, can you remind me? I was reading something about it that they did some research, um, uh, fasting research, and that those who were not eating anything but were still drinking, taking their supplements like vitamin C, mm-hmm. lipoic yeah. acid, they didn't saw the same benefits. Yeah. So yeah. we were talking hmm. about that last night. Like uh, if they were taking vitamin A or C or some other kind of antioxidant, they didn't get the longevity response that they saw in the other patients that they studied who were fasting. So it kind of counteracts the effects of fasting or exercise. So not all free radicals are bad because it's like a signal to your body that your cells need to regenerate and repair. So if you knock out all the free radicals, your body's not getting the same signals to strengthen itself. Yeah. So same thing there's got to be happens. a balance. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing actually happens with exercise. They've done some studies that have found that people who take antioxidants don't have the same benefit to um, resistance training as uh, people who don't take those antioxidants. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you're taking something to help mitigate the damage that you're doing, then your body doesn't respond to that damage. Mm-hmm. So you don't end up with as many benefits. Yeah, it's like you need that small level of stress to be able to initiate um, certain systems that can overall um, have a much better effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of shines light on the whole sort of antioxidant subject. And um, it shows that we can't be black or black and white about these things. And, um, you know, antioxidants are good for certain things. But, however, you know, taking them all day, every day, um, may actually not be so beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it depends on what you're, you're fasting. After. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or exercising. I remember from the mitochondrial research that, yes, like there's, there needs to be a balance of oxidant activity and antioxidant activity. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if just having a high-carb diet, it's, you know, tips the balance off to the oxidant side. So that's why people derive benefits from taking antioxidants. Mm. Like vitamin C, you know, it regulates uh, sugar metabolism. But when you're not eating such a high-carb diet, then that explains why people feel like they need need less supplements. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, just being in sugar-burning mode versus fat-burning mode, um, sugar-burning mode really creates a lot more uh, free radicals just by the process itself. So it's actually a more inflammatory diet. Yeah, fat mm-hmm. is a cleaner burning fuel. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that, that that's part of it. Like you don't need as many antioxidant supplements if you are in this alternative, this alternative energy pathway because, um, you know, you don't, you're not creating as much inflammation. So you just, you don't need those anti-inflammatories. Mm-hmm. That also reminds me about the metabolism, insulin metabolism, which is triggered after a high-carb meal that is just related with every single aging process, inflammatory response. Mm. And uh, it puts, yes, it puts the body in a, you know, like in a reproductive mode, you know, um, burning reproductive mode of some, uh, related to the summer season. Mm. And uh, how fasting, you know, actually calms everything related to insulin down and actually promotes human human growth hormone, which is very healing and rejuvenating. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing it does fasting or intermittent fasting is that it increases the amount of human growth hormone that's released and it causes autophagy, which is like the cleanup pathway like in your brain and in your body and you discard more waste and if your insulin is too high you're not going to have the benefit of having raised levels of hdh Mm. so if you have like some kind of you know muscular pains or joint pains or something like that hdh comes in handy because it repairs collagen Mm -hmm. yeah what was the article that said that after 24 hours Mm. they measured uh people's uh uh, HGH levels, and they were for men it was two thousand percent higher, mm-hmm. and for women it was thirteen hundred percent higher. Yeah, you guys are nearly there. Mind blowing! Oh my god! Yeah, we're almost at twenty four hours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll make it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's part of the reason why, if you're on a ketogenic diet and you just do a little bit of exercise, you can get like really buffed up. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, that's true. Yeah, it's very protein sparing. So you're not breaking down your muscle and you don't really have to do much and you'll get kind of ripped. It's not me, you know, but other people. (laughs) (laughs) That also speaks of the epidemic of joint problems in relatively young people and young people like 18 years old having like hernial discs, you know, mm. it's just because if they eat these high carb meals, you know, they will never have a spike of human growth hormone and they don't have autophagy, which is absolutely needed for repair. You know, mm. apparently you cannot make, uh, you cannot rebuild your joints or your muscles if you're not having autophagy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is kind of funny that that kind of brings up, um, other approaches to fasting. So we're fasting right now and we, all we've had is water all day. And, uh, but there's other approaches to fast. Like there's people who do juice fast. There is the master <laughs> cleanse, uh, which is the one where you do a combination of lemon juice, I maple that. syrup. So did I. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was horrifying. I had it's really colitis bad. one month after that. Oh, no, I thought it was, you know. <laughs> Jeez, I, I going back to trying to eat after doing that one was just was torture. Mm. It was terrible because you know during the entire fast you're just craving all this different food, and then as soon as it's over you're like, yeah, it's time for me to eat this corned beef sandwich, <laughs> and it was just like your body just completely rebels against it. Can you explain what what that um, master cleanse consists of? Yeah, so basically it's it's um it's they tell you to do it for ten days your first time. Although they say if you're an experienced faster, you can do it up for 40 days. And it's basically a combination of uh, lemon juice, maple syrup, grade cayenne B. pepper, grade B maple syrup, yeah. cayenne pepper, uh, and water. And over the course of the fast, that's all you're drinking, just that. I mean, you can also do water or you can mm-hmm. do, they say you can do herbal teas. And you have to take salt water in the morning just yeah, to you flush your flush. system out. But here's the problem with it, right? And it's a, it's a problem with a lot of approaches to these different fasts, is that basically you are completely um, preventing your body from entering this beneficial mode of fasting because you're keeping your sugar high. Mm-hmm. And as long as your sugar levels are high... You don't enter into the uh, ketosis. You don't start burning fat. You don't raise your HGH levels. So all you're doing on the master cleanse is giving yourself the absolute bare minimum of carbohydrate so your body doesn't completely collapse. (laughs) And you are completely uh, breaking down your own protein, your muscle stores, even your organs in some cases because your body needs that protein for stuff. So it really is the most detrimental way you could possibly fast. And juice fasts, I don't think, are much better. Mm-hmm. I mean, juice fasting, I guess, is beneficial in some way because you're getting a concentration of all those like phytonutrients and vitamins and stuff like that. But you're not getting any actual energy except from the sugar in the, whatever it is you're juicing. So mm. I don't know. It, it just seems like a complete wrong way to do a fast. Yeah, I've done the master um, cleanse a couple of times, and yeah. I will never, ever, ever, somebody paid me, I would not do that again. <laughs> After about seven days, I was so sick of that lemon juice, maple syrup, cayenne drink, I just couldn't do it anymore. No. I could not sip it no. at all. I haven't so I tried just... cayenne pepper ever since. No, yeah. oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I actually cheated when I did it, and I got cayenne pepper pills. Because I was like, there's no way I'm putting this into my lemonade. That just does not sound good to me. Yeah. No, that was that was a mistake. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, this- it's unfortunate because it still gets promoted too. Mm-hmm. Like they call it, it's often referred yeah. to as the lemonade diet. And you see like celebrities saying, oh, I lost like 50 pounds doing the lemonade diet. Okay, you lost probably 50 pounds of muscle because I don't think that you're, you you were burning any fat in that state. And you gained it all back as soon as you stopped. Well, exactly, right? Because <laughs> your body's like, yay, food. <laughs> Maybe they lost their brain too. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise yeah. me, man. <laughs> well, I remember doing the master clean. Uh, there was also like a high fiber formula that you oh. had to drink. Yeah. And I... that was completely devastating for my colon you know uh-huh. i had you know colitis you know a month or two after that you know it yeah it was bad <laughs> yeah. yeah i tried to do the cleanse with uh 
psyllium husk one time oh. and that was just that was one of the worst experiences ever it's like running gravel through your yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> that's terrible it is literally bad yeah it's like yeah. washing your colon with a brillo pad yeah. yeah yeah i don't know why people think that that's a good thing it just basically like it expands to like what four times its size or something mm-hmm. like that and just like pushes against the outside or the inside of your digestive tract and just like yeah, like a Brillo pad, basically scrubbing. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't think that's a good idea. <clears throat> well, it most li- I don't know this for a fact, but it most likely causes inflammation as well. Oh, yeah. I would think colitis so. is inflammation of the colon, literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, going back to the Ramadan context, you know, where where people you know eat high carb meals, you know, sugary meals. Um, I was reading this research, uh, Mark Sisson on the ketogenic diet, that it was definitely much easier to do uh, fasting, even even if it's 24 hours or a little bit less or a little bit longer, if you do keto adaptation the three three weeks before. Mm, right. Yeah, that would definitely make sense. Mm. Sure. Yeah, because I mean, if you if your body is already used to uh, burning fat as, as its main source of fuel, then Going without any um, any food, you just switch into uh, fat burning mode and you just start burning your own fat stores. So it makes it much easier and much more comfortable. It's not that you're not hungry, of course, because you still mm-hmm. do feel that. But it's not that same kind of like panicked, hangry, mm-hmm. oh, I've got to eat now type feeling. Yeah, and we all yeah. worked <laughs> physically, yeah. did physical work today. Yeah, and it was mm. fine. But there's a difference between being in ketosis and being keto adaptive. Like you said, mm-hmm. Gabby, yeah. it takes a yeah. few weeks for a lot of people to really switch on like all the fat burning enzymes to generate some new mitochondria to help them burn fat easier. So if you just do it for a few days, I mean, it's easy to go back to eating carbs and you're immediately a sugar burner again. Mm-hmm. But if you yeah. give it the three weeks, I mean, you really shouldn't go back to eating carbs after that. But, yeah. Um, you'll really get into that mode where you're, it's not a big deal at all to well, go for 24 hours or maybe even a little bit more without eating. Yeah. I, I actually remember there was, um, uh, who's the protein power guy? Um, Michael oh, Eads? yeah. That's it. Yes. Yeah. He actually um, recommended fasting before trying to uh, get into ketosis. Because he said it was a good yeah, way like, of kind of jump-starting yeah. um, the whole fat-burning process. Yeah. So it goes it goes both ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. it seems to. Yeah. It also reminds me a relative contraindication for doing these fastings, especially the 24-hour one or longer, is if you have severe adrenal fatigue, it's just really a big, you know, stressful reaction if you mm. try to do a very long fasting. And, uh, yes. Or if you're pregnant so, uh, or breastfeeding. Yes. Yeah. Check Don't with do your us. doctor before you attempt fasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if you have an issue with cortisol levels, yes. Usually what you do to heal your adrenal fatigue is like you don't skip breakfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you eat. <laughs> so you try to put your body in balance again. But it's a relative contraindication. I think that if you are working towards keto adaptation and then you can tolerate uh, intermittent fasting better, that will be, you know, easier to do Mm -hmm. fasting. Well, because it does, I mean, fasting, being without food is a a stress to the body. So um, it it does release cortisol, um, which is one of the the reasons why it does have an anti-inflammatory effect, actually. But, um, yeah, I mean, you just have to recognize that, you know, it's not a cakewalk. You do have to kind of, um, you know, be in, in, in relatively good shape to attend something like this. And, and speaking of intermittent fasting, I guess to our ancestors, it was just the way things were. But we yeah. have to come up with this fancy name, <laughs> call it intermittent fasting. <laughs> yeah, so no there's, there's various types of it. Uh, you can like not eat for 12 hours, like between your last meal, dinner, like say you stop eating at seven, then you'll have breakfast at 7 a.m. Mm. That'll be 12 hours. Or you can take it out to like 16 hours. Some people do that every day, 16, 18 hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or some people will um, alternate 
alternate their days of fasting. Mm-hmm. Like they'll eat regularly for one day, and then the next day they'll eat either nothing or eat like five or six hundred calories and mm-hmm. just do that off and on. I've done that before, <laughs> and it was kind of crazy making <laughs> at first. <'cause laughs> like, that fasting day, you just cannot wait until you eat. But then after a while, it became okay as I went deeper into keto adaptation. Mm. But yeah. Yeah. It, definitely don't. I, I rarely eat lunch anymore. I mean, not like yeah. I used to. It's just breakfast and dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I did that 18-hour uh, window um, for a while. Actually, I guess for me it was probably more like 16 hours. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I would just – I would wake up in the morning and I wouldn't eat breakfast and then I wouldn't eat until lunchtime. And mm-hmm. then I'd eat dinner and then, yeah, next day I'd do the same thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, after a while it just became normal. That's what kind of what I always did. Mm-hmm. But um, – I- Sorry, go on. I, I did it instinctively after night shifts. Like it will put my body into repair mode. Uh, 12 or 16 hours fasting like I ate the night mm-hmm. before. Then throughout the rest of the night shift, I will not eat. And when I arrive home at 8.30 or 9 a.m. in the morning, I'll just go to bed and, and you know, have my regular normal night sleep, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is usually like six to seven or eight hours depending on how the night shift was mm. and then when i wake up i will eat but by then i will be on a 16 or 18 hours you know uh fasting i would right yeah i mean it's important to put this into context um because it's a relatively recent phenomena uh throughout humanity's history um that we've had access to food 24 7 you know, um, like you, if you're all living out in the, in nature as a hunter-gatherer, then you may not come across food for weeks, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the body has a natural um, inbuilt mechanism to account for that lack of food in the environment, and that is to go into this fasted state of ketosis, mm-hmm. um, you know, and... <sighs> Was it Dr. Mark Matson? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Mark Matson. He spoke about the neurological benefits of um, ketone production, but he was saying that when you go into this fasted state, um, it actually it actually increases your brain function, and this is like a survival mechanism uh, because if you're out in the wild and you get the environmental signal that there is no food, then um, your br- it, it, it's um, it's it's important for your brain to work more efficiently Mm -hmm. so that you can find food that isn't there. Mm -hmm. It's basically like, okay, there's no food. So I need to start my, my brain needs to start working. I have to start Mm -hmm. thinking about how to find food. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So if your brain shut down, whenever you didn't have any food, you'd be dead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It could be a new version of the paleo diet where we just lock the kitchen and then give somebody a bow and arrow. (laughs) (laughs) Figure it out. Figure it out. Your brain should be working better now, so. <laughs> well, there's this guy, I forget his name, but he called his diet. It's basically intermittent fasting, but he called his the warrior diet. And I think he just ate like one big meal a day. It mm. would go like up to 16 to 20 hours in between meals. Wow. And he, of course, he swears by it. He wrote a book about it. <laughs> Is he a warrior? I think he'd like to fancy himself one, but really, he's just this really buff dude who likes to work out. (laughs) He's a a CrossFit warrior. Yeah, no doubt. No, I think he does something like move Nat, where he's like outside climbing trees and, you know, jumping over logs and stuff. Oh, cool. Mm. Oh, yeah, I remember now. He's uh, he's not a young guy. He's, you know, middle-aged, 50s, 60s, maybe. Hmm. Look at Mark Sisson, though. I mean, yeah. he's yeah. not a young guy either, and he's absolutely, like, ripped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it's it's common sense. All you really have to do is look around you to see that, uh, you know, restricted caloric intake plus physical activity is better for your body than sitting around and, and eating the standard Western diet. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you don't even really have to analyze it that much. You just have to look around. Yeah. Well, some people like to take that to the extreme. <laughs> yeah. And call themselves breatharians. Oh. Uh, oh yeah. 
They claim that they live off of pranic energy or chi or the life force of the earth. I can't say whether or not I totally discount it, but thinking about someone who claims to not have eaten any food or in some cases even not drink any water for years yeah. makes mm. me skeptical. Yeah. You can say that. I don't know through personal experience whether this can be done or not, but I think when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, maybe it does provide them some kind of benefit, like if they claim they do this, but it doesn't mean that they, you know, have some advanced spirituality. And in a way, can it kind of be going against? life on 3d earth like they think Mm. they're so above it that they don't even have to take in any food or anything yeah but on the other hand i also think you know why not why can't we make use of the air and the sunlight and be able to convert that into some kind of usable energy yeah fans can do it yeah Yeah. we're not plants though then they need water (laughs) as well yeah Yeah. they do need water that's true yeah i don't know i remember um when the the raw food movement was really big um and i was encountering it a lot and um i remember i don't remember exactly where i saw it but it was some some raw foodist going on about something and they said oh people are always like where do you get your protein from and it's like duh there's nitrogen in the air so you can just get it from the air and i'm like i don't think it works that way but i don't know yeah i mean breatharians the i mean you know i i previously just completely discounted breatharians as just being insane mm. and the fact of the matter oh. is a lot you know there's been all these a documented cases of, of people who have died of starvation mm-hmm. so yeah. i mean obviously even if there is something to it it's not as simple as just you know starving yourself people do die of starvation so I yeah mean, well yeah. the breatharians would claim they died because they believed that they would die yeah. oh okay oh, yeah. wow. that's convenient that's pretty bad <laughs> But I don't know. There was, there have been actually documented cases where they've put people in rooms and mm-hmm. studied them, and they go without food and water for like two weeks or something like that, and they don't have any physiological detriment that they can see. Right. So I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Uh-huh. And yeah. a, a lot of them started off as vegetarians or kind of mm-hmm. kooky new age type people. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And there's really no way. Like the longest study I've read is this Indian guy who said that when he was 11 years old, this goddess came from the sky and said, you don't have to eat anymore. Yeah. So he claims that for the last 70 years, he hasn't eaten any food or drank any water. And he was tested twice. Like the first time was for 10 days and nothing bad happened to him. They had cameras on him the whole time. And he was tested again a few years later. And I think they tested him this time for 14 years. And again, it was the same. Not 14 years, 14 days. But, you know, it's kind of unrealistic for anybody to test somebody for 14 years. Yeah. I mean, how long would it take for people to be convinced that you can go without food? No one's going to dedicate all that time and manpower to watching some dude in a room for years. But even for two weeks, like a person should be showing some kind of sign of starvation. Yeah. so, like some kind of sign that they haven't had any food or water for that time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, you're right. Like it would be, you know, you can't necessarily take their claim that they've been like this for years, but even doing two weeks is pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah, I mean, weren't there like no signs of dehydration, no yeah. physiological changes, yeah. no nothing, just basically. Yeah, this you know, Indian the guy <laughs> claimed, and they didn't have any evidence that he actually moved his bowels or even made urine. Like, he made some urine, yeah. but he didn't expel it. They said it was reabsorbed into his body. What? Wow. Yes. Uh, right. Yeah, is, that, <laughs> that, uh, is that Prahlad, Prahlad Johnny? Yes. Is that the guy that you're talking Yeah. Yeah. And there's this other Australian kook who calls herself Jasmine. Mm-hmm. She tried to go under uh, an experiment, and I think she crapped out after 48 hours, but she said it was because of the bad vibes of the people who were studying her. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> The bad yeah. vibes. You got to watch out for the bad vibes. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, theoretically, and I'm looking at Elliot right now because I know he knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. But given what we were talking about on our show about water and the fourth phase of water and how it actually kind of acts as almost like a battery um, and that it, it can generate energy, 
is it theoretically possible that because we are composed so much of water, that as long as we're getting the right frequency of light from the sun, that we could actually create energy that way? Theoretically? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, theoretically, I think it's possible. Yeah. You know? um, we should do a, a show on that in the future about water. Mm. But, you know, like, there have been many experiments over the years, over the past hundred years, um, starting with a guy called Gilbert Ling and Gerald Pollock. He does a lot of work with water. And he basically shows that, you know, water can essentially do what you said. You know, it, 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 there's a fourth phase of water and it's like a gel-like substance and it acts like a battery. And when you put it out in sunlight, it absorbs that light and then it can then transfer that electrical current to surrounding cells. And so there's this whole theory that, in fact, maybe the mitochondria, um, the energy substrate of the body, it may not necessarily be what is known as ATP, and it may actually just be the electrical current that's provided by the water. I mean, you have to think about it. Our body's made up of, what is it, like 99% water or something? I don't think it's that much, but like it's a 65, lot. 65%. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh, I thought it was higher than that. Yeah, eighty like percent. There's like conflicting. Yeah, it's yeah. not ninety nine percent, but it's, it's something. I it's mean, high. Yeah, and the conventional view of science is that water doesn't really have much of a function in the body, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it is possible. Maybe some people have some way of tapping into some, I guess, glitch in the matrix. You mm. know, glitch in the laws that keep us human. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. And people can actually yeah, photosynthesize that's, that's my my thinking about it is that um so you know what we understand about placebo and things like that that the body can accomplish things that seemingly fly in the face of conventional science um and like this guy prelate johnny <clears throat> you know it may uh be possible but he, he's actually i think the only real like scientifically documented case that i can think of well um, there is there is uh, another couple of people uh, there was okay. this Swiss guy, I think, or he was in Sweden, and he was tested a couple of times in hospital for a couple of weeks. Again, no you know, ill effects from not having any uh, food or drink, and they wouldn't publish the study. So if anybody wants to check out a movie about breatharianism, it's called In the Beginning There Was Light. Uh, there's a YouTube trailer and like little snippets on YouTube, but I think for the entire documentary, you have to buy it and pay, pay to stream it. Mm. But there's more information in there. So there's been a couple of people where they've documented it, but I don't think you'll ever see anything in the published scientific literature about wow. this because yeah. everybody thinks it's impossible. Yeah. That's, I guess I was going to say my, my thinking about it is that it, it may be possible, but you would have to, essentially dedicate your entire life to that pursuit, all of your mm. mental and psych, you know, psychological and physical energy mm. towards achieving that singular goal. Which brings, um, you know, that, uh, which brings an argument I wanted to say, even if this is possible, like in some Indian yogi does it, well, that doesn't mean anything for the average person that doesn't, yeah. you know, have this lifestyle. And, mm -hmm. you know, right. So, <laughs> yeah, the average person can't even stop eating at McDonald's. Yeah. Well, <laughs> stop eating food. <laughs> but I do think that the human body is capable of a lot more than we know. And mm. it is possible to go for very long periods without food, at least. Mm. Water, probably for longer than we think. Mm. Um, so, all we can do is try it for ourselves but i told you guys about the three-day water fast i did and then i decided to stop drinking water and it was about eight hours and i got so violently ill uh, so maybe oh. i just went into very very deep cleansing mode <laughs> i maybe or maybe you just needed water yeah <laughs> or maybe you just needed water yeah. <laughs> that's the thing right like it's it seems it happens so often where you see these these people who are doing supposedly beneficial things for their health some kind of quack new thing to do and they're having these violent reactions against them and like oh it's because i'm cleansing i'm having a deep cleansing <laughs> it's a reaction. healing it's like, crisis no your body is screaming at you <laughs> yeah well just uh you know to relate kind of anecdotally like we we talked about that during the uh episode about iodine um you know there there is a there is a point like where 
you're, you're detoxing and you're having negative reactions, those negative reactions are actually positive. However, mm-hmm. you don't want to push that too far because you can overload your body and yeah. really cause a reversal of the positive outcome. So you need yeah. to like take it easy. You know, there's some kind of masochism involved there where it's, mm-hmm. it just goes too far. Yeah, if your liver and your kidneys can't keep up with the cleansing process, it's time to slow things down and back off. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Stressful response is a stressful, a stressful response. So mm-hmm. yes, common sense. Yeah. So talking about the um, <clears throat> the the meals and, and how much people eat, um, it made me think of like the idea of three square meals a day, and kind of where that came from. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I found a. Uh, <clears throat> I just forgot a frog in my throat today. Huh. I'm, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> frog pass. Uh, I found an interesting article on the BBC about um, the history of the three square meals, hmm. um, and apparently, religious ritual is actually what began the idea of the full English breakfast, hmm. because uh, the day before what was called Shrove Tuesday. People had to use up meat before the beginning of Lent. Mm. Um, much of that, much of that meat was pork and bacon, uh, as well as eggs. And so the the need to use that up is kind of what resulted in the idea of the full English breakfast. Mm. Well, I'm um, glad they did. But that, yeah. <laughs> but that for, for many that years, yeah, there, um, for a long time, and, and especially during like the uh, the Roman times, it was essentially one meal a day. Um, and it was really during the industrial revolution that the, uh, the three meals a day began to get popular. And it huh. was, um, <clears throat> let me find this here. The, the Earl of Sandwich, which is where Sandwich was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is interesting because it was after the industrial revolution that humanity's health really went down the tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that the, it was the Earl of Sandwich in the 1750s who came up with, you know, the idea of a sandwich as a snack. Um, and, of course, that then began to gain popularity. But then uh, at the advent of uh, artificial light uh, in the 20th century um, was when meals began to go later and later into the day. Mm-hmm. And so people then began to eat more and more for that midday meal because they were eating later. But uh, mm-hmm. for many years it had been... You know, some some food in the morning, essentially whatever you could find, but mostly like protein and fat, and then uh, another meal like uh, right around sunset, which in most areas would have been, you know, like what we can think of as late afternoon, you know, between like five and seven o'clock, give or take, um, mm-hmm. and that was it. But now, you know, of course, with uh, with the artificial light and the schedules that we keep, um, you, in fact, I think a lot of people don't eat breakfast at all. Um, and so then you're starving by the time you need to eat lunch. So you eat lunch, you eat a lot of carbs and sugar. Um, then you get home and you eat like a big dinner because you're starving again at like around nine or 10 o'clock. Um, and that is kind of what's resulted in the, the three square meals a day was, you know, the industrial revolution and the, uh, the extension of our, our day. And, and you can't thing. discount the food industry either. I mean, they have a product right. to yeah. push and they're going to push it. Yeah. 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 Breakfast and that cereal. actually evolved to fi- to eating five times a day. Now that is what, usually yeah. what is recommended because people have such uh, spikes of sugar and then lows that they have to eat like, yes, at least five times a day to keep up with that sugar burning mode. And probably because really the food is so nutritionally deficient mm. that <laughs> in order to actually, surprised. you know, get close to, uh, to what the body actually needs... <laughs> you know, pack in some to, extra you, meals. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, fasting. What a concept. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we can say that uh, overall, you know, if you if you follow uh, really even the paleo diet, um, but especially the the ketogenic diet, um, that uh, you know you begin to notice much less hunger. Uh, and I think anybody, you know, our listeners who have done the, the keto diet or are on it right now. Um, I mean, I'm sure that there are a few people who have gone keto and like never gone back, but I would, I would tend to think that most people who have tried it have gone back to eat carbs, you know, more than once or twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you definitely notice, you know, you get hungry right away. Mm-hmm. 
like my girlfriend and I took a vacation a couple of years ago and we hadn't planned very well. And so we ended up eating, um, more carbs during that vacation and noticed immediately like, holy crap, I'm starving. Mm-hmm. Like what is going on now? You know? Um, and then when you get back to more, um, animal fat and protein, you definitely notice like you just don't have those hunger pangs. You might feel hungry, but it's not like Doug said that the hangry feeling mm-hmm. where you're just like, <laughs> I need some freaking food right now. <laughs> yeah. I know I that one too eating. well. In energy levels, like with more carbs, I will just be very tired, a lot mm. of brain fog all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I've noticed that I've been hungrier on days where I eat food versus days where I fast. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it seems like the less you eat, the less hungry you get. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is strange because people always say, oh, I'm going to eat a big meal. So, you know, I can go for hours and hours without eating, but it doesn't work that way for no, me. It doesn't. Nope. Yeah. No, if I eat a well, big speak- meal, I'll get hungry sooner, especially yes. if there was carbs in that meal, mm-hmm. then, then I yeah. would get hungry sooner for sure. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the cravings, I mean, there's the, uh, the candida issue as well too. If you are eating um, food that fuels candida, then, you know, that candida that grows in your body, gets into your brain affects the uh, the neurotransmitters and at a certain point you're <clears throat> it's not you that's actually getting the cravings it's the the fungus in your body that's telling you that it needs yeah. fuel mm-hmm. it's the bugs that is determining what foods you want <laughs> yeah. yeah well um i don't know what do you guys think do you want to do the uh the pet health segment and uh then we'll come back and, and wrap it up after this Sounds good. good. Yeah. Good. Hey, Let's go to Zoya. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, I would like to share with you an interesting talk by Dr. Karen Becker about therapy with leeches for pets. The idea to find good information on this topic came to me after... During my practice at the clinic, I saw a horse being treated for laminitis. Laminitis is an excruciatingly painful inflammatory condition of the tissues that bond the hoof wall to the pedal bone in the horse's hoof. The reasons may vary, and in this particular case, it was body's reaction after gorging on oats. And also in this particular case, the only treatment after the initial fluid therapy was styrofoam support pads, that were replaced periodically. The idea is to allow the body to heal this condition by itself by relieving the pressure in the hoofs. But there is also another proven method that I talked about in one of the previous shows, bloodletting. Apparently, bloodletting of 5 up to 8 liters, which isn't too much uh, for a horse, releases the pressure in the hoof capsule, and thus relieves the pain and helps horse's body to do the rest. Well, unfortunately, veterinarians at the clinic weren't open to the idea, saying that this is an archaic method and, in fact, doesn't work, while countless testimonies of veterinarians, albeit from the beginning of last century, prove otherwise. Besides, why not to try it if the horse is going to be euthanized anyway, if, he, if his condition won't improve? Anyways, there is another alternative to the bloodletting that may also assist with various ailments. It is also no less archaic, but also no less effective. So here is Dr. Karen Specker talk about leeches and what they can do for your pets. Enjoy. Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker. And although the idea seems rather ghoulish and gross, the idea of leeches in modern-day medicine actually has a lot of science to back it up. In fact, the FDA approved leeches as medical devices over 10 years ago. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, medicinal leeching was used to treat a number of human conditions, including mental disturbances, I mean, a huge range, from mental issues, whooping cough, gout, tumors, headaches, to obesity. However, not many people back in those days documented the effectiveness of leeching, so the practice pretty much dropped off in the 20th century. More recently, leeching has reemerged in human medicine in Germany, as well as the U.S., as a highly effective all-natural treatment. The practice is also growing substantially in veterinary medicine thanks to primarily holistic and integrative veterinarians. 
There's actually over 700 known species of leeches, but the one that's most commonly used for medicinal purposes is Hirudo medicinalis, which can grow to be about eight inches long, is brownish green in color with red stripes running down the entire length of his body. Medicinal leeches are an ancient species, having been around for millions of years. From the publication, The Use of Leeches in Veterinary Medicine by the Hennesses, due to their medicinal efficiency, they have established a kind of symbiosis with their hosts when suffering from frequent certain mammalian diseases. According to several different reports, sick hooved animals, let's say horses or cows, intuitively go into leech waters in search of therapy. Medicinal leeches actually naturally attach to their hosts in areas or parts of the body that have a really good blood supply or where there's inflammation. So leeches almost intuitively know where to go. And since the leeches can often locate those areas, obviously without having to be directed, instead of people placing them on the treatment area, wild animals and uh, animals that have exposure to leeches have benefited from that therapy for many, many years. Experienced veterinarians also will allow leeches, when used in a, in, a, in a medical setting, will allow leeches to intuitively find the place that they need to attach to as well. Leeches have very large suckers on one end of their bodies that help them crawl and attach, and then they also have a smaller sucker on the other end that's used for feeding. They have a tripart jaw uh, that leaves either a star or a Y-shaped mark when they're done feeding. Leeches are sanguivorous, which means they feed on blood, and they can store blood inside their bodies for months. They're actually equipped with gut bacteria that helps break down the components of the blood as well. There is at least 100 bioactive substances that have been identified in the saliva of leeches, and most commonly, the most active ingredient is called hyrudin, which gives the saliva its anticoagulant properties. Leeching is actually minimally invasive, and there's little to no pain involved thanks to an anesthetic substance that's also found in the leech saliva. So when a leech feeds, it can actually remove one to two teaspoons of blood per feeding. And the site will continue to ooze an additional one to two teaspoons for another 24 to 48 hours after the leech is done uh, and or has fallen off or been removed. As the leech attaches onto the treatment area, it begins to release saliva into the wound, which causes the host animal's blood to become very dilute and fluid. And it's that saliva that actually inhibits coagulation. Shortly afterwards, the leech starts to feed on the host animal's blood, and it sucks mainly venous blood, which removes congestion. Meanwhile, the leech saliva also continues to be released into the wound, which provides anticoagulant, anti-inflammatory, and antibiotic benefits to the local area. The saliva also has properties that stimulate blood circulation to and from the wound site and provide analgesic and vasodilation effects as well. Scientists suspect that there are several additional effective substances in leech saliva that have not yet been detected or discovered. And researchers have isolated certain ingredients in the saliva, but it seems very clear that no isolated or synthetic or recombinant substance made from or made to mimic the ingredients in leech saliva has the same wide-reaching benefits of an actual leech. So leeches it is. This is likely due to a complexity of the structure of the saliva or the ability of the leech to produce saliva that's actually customized to the needs of the host animal. Leech therapy proves to be successful in treating a whole variety of different conditions in veterinary medicine, including arthritis. In fact, early in the disease, leech therapy can actually rejuvenate degenerated cartilage. In advanced arthritis, leech therapy can actually enhance ossification, which leads to a rapid diminishing of pain. At all stages, leeches can improve blood circulation, help remove deposits, and reduce pain. Now, leech therapy is also used for wound care. In fact, it helps reduce inflammation and helps fresh wounds heal faster without complications. Pus drainage is minimal and can occur very, very quickly when leech therapy is instituted. It's also used for inflammation management. Leech therapy has proven to be very successful and helpful in resolving inflammation of joints and connective tissues that occur as a result of immune system issues as well, including autoimmune polyarthritis. Leeches are also used in equine medicine for a variety of inflammatory-based conditions, including laminitis. In dogs and cats, leech therapy can be used to treat a variety of other conditions, including hip dysplasia, intervertebral disc disease, lick granulomas, otitis or inflammation of the ears, as well as ear hematomas, as well as a variety of other wounds, including constriction wounds or wounds that have had uh, lost blood supply or compromised blood supply. In fact, just last week, I volunteer at a local wildlife rehab hospital in Scottsdale, and they had a crow that had been um, electrocuted, and the crow was losing blood supply of his toes. His feet were cold and needed improved blood supply. Circulation was terrible. Leeches would have been a perfect option for that crow if we would have had them. 
Leech therapy is considered an extremely safe treatment overall. Side effects are incredibly rare, but can include uh, an allergic reaction, very, very rare, and actually a scar formation in some instances. Leeches should not be used in animals that have blood coagulation issues or conditions or that are on anticoagulant medications such as aspirin or blood flow stimulating medications or any other type of NSAID that would inhibit clotting. Leeches should also not be used in anemic patients or animals with diabetes. Leech therapy is performed under the right environmental circumstances by trained professionals. Leeches have an aversion to strong odors, so it's important that the patient not be bathed in any type of scented shampoo or have any type of residual essential oils or ointments on them. Leeches typically suck until they fall off by themselves. In fact, removing a leech against its will is not a good idea. It actually reduces the therapeutic effect. No wound care is necessary after the leech therapy is done. In fact, that second hemorrhage, that one to two teaspoons of blood that drains after the leech falls off, um, actually cleans the wound. And once that discharge is done, the wound immediately closes and a scab forms right away. So there's no maintenance that needs to be done to that area. Animals tolerate leech therapy very well, so there's no reason that a dog or cat patient can't move around during the treatment. However, they need to be monitored to make sure that they're not rubbing the leech off or pawing or trying to bite it. Um, but they're able to move around. It's um, not painful. It's important that the animal not lay down on the leech. The leech needs to be able to do its job kind of naturally um, without being restricted. Occasionally after treatment, the pet will need to be fitted with a loose absorbent bandage to keep that secondary discharge from getting on your floor or carpet. And it's really important that the bandage not be tight because it's important that that uh, secondary wound be allowed to drain because that's part of the healing process. If any of these medical conditions ring a bell for you and if you haven't had success with traditional treatment, I would encourage you to consider speaking with your holistic vet about trying this unique, novel, all-natural, and very therapeutic form of medicine. Right. <laughs> I'd try leech therapy, but I couldn't see it on me. They'd have to, like, hide it. Yeah, blindfold me or something. Maybe not tell oh, you. Gosh. They just put a bandage on you, and the leech is under the bandage. And they yeah. just put it on and say, We've got yeah. a treatment on there. Don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't kill it. <laughs> so, this is our, our recommendation for today is fast, don't bathe, and then slap some leeches on yourself. <laughs> well, start with number one fast. Yeah. 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 Let's see how you feel about the leeches. <laughs> and ease your way into it. Don't jump from sad diet to fasting. Yeah. Go keto right. first. It makes it much easier. Or at easier. least go paleo yeah, first. Yeah. Yeah. What about breaking a fast? Yeah. I mean, oh, that's a good uh, good subject. <laughs> <laughs> you guys feel like breaking a fast? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know that if you do an extended fast, like for a long period of time, you yeah. really want to ease back into mm-hmm. um, food uh, and probably go with stuff that's re- relatively easy to digest. Um, but doing something like a 24-hour fast or something like that, I don't no. think you really have to, yeah. you have to be too, too careful about it. I'm not planning to. No. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. For me, the 12, 14, 18 hours maybe sounds good enough. Yeah. You don't want to have a dinner like the English kings of old with like 1,200 quail, 80. <laughs> I think that might be on the books for tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I plan to eat with my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, <clears throat> in the spirit of the show today, too, we are not going to have a recipe um, <laughs> about fasting. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably sit, I'd but, be drooling all over the mic, I think. You can have a plate yeah. of air. <laughs> yeah. An air sandwich. Yes, with yeah. no bread. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> zero teaspoons of cumin, zero teaspoons of black pepper. <laughs> No, no pork chops. <laughs> yes, pork, pork chops. chops. Yeah. <laughs> I want pork chops. <laughs> okay, you guys should probably break your fast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just to leave off with that point, a good point that uh, 
that you guys made, you know, that we, if you're going too fast, like we recommend trying it out. But um, uh, I think overall, uh, as a bit of advice, um, don't do anything with your body, you know, without researching it. Mm-hmm. Like there is, uh, there is some merit to quote unquote biohacking and experimenting with things, but, you know, do your research, look it up, find out, you know, what's going on. Um, run some tests on yourself if you can, you know, uh, check your cortisol levels, make sure you're not in adrenal fatigue, see how you feel, go slow, all those things. Um, don't just dive in. Um, but, uh, you know, but do try it out, do, do your research and, and try these things out. Uh, because it can be very beneficial, especially the transition from, you know, the standard kind of Western diet into paleo and then into keto. Um, I think we can all say that that has had a lot of really beneficial effects. Um, sure. And it's hard. Uh, it's not easy, but it's definitely worth it. And you'll really notice it once you get into it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, thank you to uh, all of our chat participants uh, for chatting today and uh thanks everybody for listening in um we appreciate your uh being here um be sure to tune into the uh the sot radio uh podcast on uh sunday and i don't know are you still alternating titles there between behind the headlines and the truth perspective as far as i know depending (laughs) on what the topic is (laughs) but check radio.sot.net on uh sunday and uh the time will be posted in your in your local time zone if you look at the at the website there. Um, oh, it'll be the truth perspective Sunday. Truth perspective Sunday. Yes. Cool. Um, and Eastern time, uh, because that's the only time I know is, uh, <laughs> <it's easy. laughs> um, so yeah, it's at noon, uh, Eastern time on Sunday. Um, that'll, and that'll will, be, yes, that'll be 6 PM on, on central European time. There you go. Right. Thanks Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we will be back uh, next Friday. So have a great weekend, everybody. Um, and we'll see you in a week. All right. Bye, everybody. See you guys. Bye, everybody. See ya. Bye-bye.